Well, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, towards the back of the Bible. And 1 Timothy 3 is known as a pastoral epistle. And what that simply means is that it is written by Paul, which most of us are familiar with Paul, and it is written to Timothy, who is Paul's protege. And in a sense, Paul is training Timothy to be a pastor. And so he writes Timothy some letters with instruction on things that will be helpful for him to know as he is being a leader in a local church. And so many people who are aspiring to ministry or people who are already in ministry usually keep keep the pastoral epistles close to their hearts because it gives a lot of practical instruction for, for how to be a pastor, things that, that pastors should know and ways that pastors should live and act and, and how to handle situations. And so we're thankful for books like this, but they're not just for people who are in ministry. And I think when we, when we put the name pastoral epistle on, on any book in general, we think that, well, that... that must just be kind of for pastor people or people in ministry. And maybe it doesn't have a whole lot of, of implication for the everyday church-going person. Uh, but I would, I would question that, and I would say that there is absolutely a whole lot of application uh, in, in all of the pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy, and Titus, uh, for every single person. And so I want to look at just a couple of verses, just three verses tonight. And most people, when you go to 1 Timothy 3, we're talking about either the qualifications for an overseer or the qualifications for a deacon, but I'm not going to talk about either of those things. I'll mention them. But I want to look at the last three verses of chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes and says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I was thinking about this today, and I have, I've been reading this uh, this passage in particular for, for the last couple of days, and uh, I try and read the pastoral epistles on a regular, a regular basis. And it just dawned on me today, I'm sitting on the couch, Sam is asleep, football is on in the background, it's on low volume, and I've got my Bible open, I'm just reading some things, just kind of like mulling over some of the things that I had thought about uh, saying tonight. And, and, and this one thing clicked. And it's the fact at all that Paul had written this letter to Timothy. Because like I said, it's a pastoral epistle. And so Paul, we know he's this great uh, missionary. He, he goes all over. If you read the book of Acts, it follows all the different places he goes. And he plants churches. He raises up leaders. And then he moves on and he does it again. And so I was thinking about the, how intentional Paul is in discipling or raising up Timothy as a leader. And I just thought, you know, this is, this is something that we want to focus on as a church in 2016. I was actually texting with Josh today, and, and one of the things that came up is, is we really want to focus 
on how we can be better disciplers in 2016. We want to be focused on how we can train the younger generation, the younger people, give them practical wisdom that we have learned along the way, teach them how to study the Scriptures, how to uh, deal with different situations, how, how they can be godly, God-fearing people. And I think it's awesome that we have this letter where Paul, his heart is to raise up Timothy, a leader in the church, and he's not just going to leave him out there and just not explain to him all these things that he didn't get to talk about. Because Paul and Timothy are separated at this time. That's why he writes him a letter. But Paul is concerned that Timothy is going to be, become a godly leader. Paul is very intentional in writing these letters and saying, Timothy, beware of false teaching. Timothy, if you're going to be an elder, you need to know this, and you need to know this. And Timothy, make sure that you don't forget about this. And so he's really intentional about passing on the knowledge that God has given to him to the next generation. Because Paul knows he's not going to be around forever. He's not always going to be there. They don't have phones. They can't text each other and, hey, struggling with this, what do you think I should do? They don't have that. And so Paul is, is being very intentional and in being sure that he's passing on the knowledge that he has to Timothy. Someone who's going to continue in pastoral ministry after Paul is long gone. And so one of the things I thought about this afternoon was we've got a lot of young families that just have kids. You know what we also have? A lot of families who have been there and done that a long time ago. We've got a lot of families that have been there and done that just a couple years ago. We've got a lot of families that are maybe just coming out of that stage of life. And to think about if, if we were all thinking intentionally on how to disciple the younger people or, or how to raise up these families to teach them what it means to raise a kid, teach them what it means to be intentional uh, on teaching them the gospel, telling them of Jesus, showing them through our actions how to be people of God, I think our church would radically change. I think if we were all more intentionally focused on how to raise up the next generation, it would make a big impact. And I know Josh has talked about this before. He's preached entire sermons about the reasons that we are focused on young people. It's because we're not always going to be here. No matter how great of a pastor Josh is for us, he's not always going to be here. And if he doesn't pour into the younger people, the, the coming generation, there's going to come a day where Josh is gone. We don't have him anymore. We don't have his wisdom, his knowledge. But if he passes it on to the younger people, and if all of us, in the wisdom and godliness that we have learned over the course of our life, if we pass that on to the younger generation, then guess what? When we're long gone, that wisdom and that knowledge is still there. I had someone this morning tell me that uh, they noticed a couple of Josh Jr. mannerisms uh, as I was preaching. And, and that's, that's simply a result of me sitting under Josh's preaching, me critiquing his preaching, we talk about it all the time, and me noticing things that I like about how Josh preaches, and kind of emulating that, kind of looking at how I, I preach myself and, and seeing, well, how can I improve? How does Josh does this? Josh is good at this. Let me see how I can kind of shape and, and adjust. And, and Josh is very intentional about giving me feedback when I preach, and he tells me ways that I can improve and, and, and things that I can change to, to be better. It's not necessarily this really hard thing. It's just about being intentional about it. It's about prioritizing it and thinking that it's important, knowing that it's important. 
And Paul does that. Paul believes that it's so important for him to pass on his knowledge, uh, his, his insights, and so that's what he does in, in writing these letters. So I just thought that was just a kind of a side note. That's not really part of what I was going to say tonight. So Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus, and, and Paul had been there. Paul started the church, and you can read in Acts how he comes there, starts the church, leaves after he raises up some leaders. But now Timothy is here. And Paul is writing, and if you look at chapter 1, Paul says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than stewardship that is from God. And so Paul, from the beginning, is telling Timothy, um, watch out for false teaching. All right, Be careful. This is, gonna, this is one of the main things that churches are going to have to deal with is false teaching. People who want to come into the church and they want to try and teach things about God, teach things about the Bible that they're not really sure about and that don't really line up with what Scripture says. And so Paul, uh, from the beginning, is telling Timothy to be careful. But then what I want to focus on tonight is is obviously chapter 3 where he says to Timothy that I'm wanting to come to you, but I'm writing this so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, I think it's important that we understand what Paul is talking about when he says, behave in the household of God. Now, if I were to ask probably 10 people, what is the church? How many responses do you think I would get? Probably about 10, all right? Because most people have their own ideas or their own thoughts about what the church is. And I would think that, especially if we were to go outside of of our church family and ask that question, a lot of people would probably say, it's that building right over there. The church is that place, or that place. Or the church is where all the people meet on Sunday morning. And I hope that we all know that that's not really the right answer. That's that's true in a sense. Yes, that is the church where we we locate and meet. But when the Bible talks about the church, the Bible's not talking in any way about um, roofs and walls and bricks and mortar. The Bible is talking about people. The word that we translate as church is ecclesia, and actually it means like meeting or assembly. So it has really nothing to do with a building at all. It's talking about people. And so when we read the word church throughout the entire New Testament, I hope that you are thinking this is the people of God, not the place where they meet. Okay, and so Paul is saying that I'm hoping to come to you, but if I can't, I'm writing so that you know how to behave in the household of God. So now Paul is not at all saying there's a certain way that you should behave when you go to the building that we call church. That would be very hypocritical. That's, that's what hypocrites are, right? They're people who act one way outside of church and they act a completely different way inside of church. And unfortunately, we have probably come across some of these people throughout our life. Maybe we, at some point in our life, have been that person. We've been that person who lives one way Monday through Saturday and then comes Sunday when we're here, we got the happy face on, everything's good, and we're all cheery and joyful. Paul is not at all saying when he says how, to, how, should we, how we should behave in the household of God, that there's a certain way you should act when you go to church, but then the rest of the week it doesn't really matter. When Paul is talking about the church, he's talking about the people of God. 
Those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's who Paul is including when he says the church. So when Paul says, I'm writing so you'll know how to behave in the household of God, Paul is talking about our behavior 24-7. If you are part of the household of God, that means that you have believed in Jesus. You have placed your faith in what He did for you on the cross, that He shed His blood to pay for your sins. That's what it means to be part of the people of God. And as Ephesians read, and that's why I read it as our call to worship, is that it refers to Christ as the head of the church, that we are the body. And so it gives you this idea that that church is not a building, but church is people. And, And Jesus uses the, or Paul rather, uses the head and body metaphor to explain it, which is helpful to us. And so Paul, when he talks about here how we should behave, he's not talking about in a, in a certain location or at a certain time. Paul is talking about your behavior and my behavior every day of our lives. So I want to talk about this behavior for a few minutes, but then I also want to talk about what Paul also says the church is because he gives two kind of qualifying statements. He says the church is, or the household of God is the church of the living God. So that's the first qualifying statement he gives it. But then he gives it the second one, which I find really interesting. He says it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. I thought that was fascinating. So I want to kind of come back to that. But let's talk about a little bit this behavior that Paul talks about. So if you pick up in in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is where Paul really begins to talk about behavior inside of church, the the church life behavior, okay? So he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, First of all then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so the first thing Paul is saying is that if you're going to be part of the household of God, the church of the living God, we need to be people who pray. We pray for everyone. It's real easy to be selective in who we pray for, isn't it? Before uh, Andrew Harrison left, he was doing a, a project for school, and it, was, it had something to do with prayer, and so he asked me if he could interview me. And so he's asking me these questions about like how often I pray and uh, where I pray or how much time I spend praying. And then he asked me this question. He said, how often do you pray for our elected leaders? And I thought, oh, not very much. And that kind of hit home. Because I know that we've heard before, well, we should be people who pray for our leaders even if we don't agree for them or agree with them. But here Paul says, again, we need to be people who pray, who are thankful, being made, uh, giving thanksgiving for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. I wonder if we are people who naturally pray, number one, for all people, but number two, what about our elected officials? We don't have kings, but we have plenty of people that are in high positions of authority over us. And it's important, Paul says, that the people of God are people who pray for their leaders. They pray for all people, not just the people in their church, not just the people in their community. They pray for all people. He also says... Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, I desire then in every place that the men should pray, 
lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so Paul is saying that the men should be the ones who are setting the example for those who pray. The men should be setting the example as far as being a church who prays. We should be able to look to the men in our church, to the leaders in our church, and see that they are people who truly do pray for all people, for people in authority over us, whether we agree with them or not. Paul is saying this is how the people of God should look. This is how they should act. People of prayer, men should set the example. But then he also talks about the women. Talks about how they should adorn themselves in respectable ways. Verses 9 and 10. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in a respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. He's saying women, if you're part of the household of God, if you are part of the church of God, you shouldn't be people who care all about having the nicest clothes and having the best hairdo and having the most expensive things. He says you should adorn yourselves with things that correspond with godliness. Be women who are adorned with good works. This is how the people of God should look. They shouldn't be like everyone else. They shouldn't be like the rest of the world. Paul also talks about the relationship between men and women in the church, which some people find controversial. And then in chapter 3, which is probably the most popular section of, of this letter here. We, we read this and reference it often. But he gives the guidelines for what the, the pastor should look like, what his life should be like. He gives the qualifications for the overseer or the elder or pastor. All those words are synonymous. And then he also gives that same thing for the deacons. If you're going to be a deacon in the household of God, here's how your life should look. Husband of one wife, not a drunkard, not a, a, a poor person or you know whatever. But Paul is saying there should, be, there, should, there should be certain things that are true of your deacons. There should be certain things that are true of your elders. And so Paul, as he's naming all of these things, he's describing and, and explaining what the lives of the people in the church should look like. Not just on Sunday, but every day. Now here's, here's how, why I think Paul also talks about um, calling the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. So I found this really interesting. I looked up pillar, and, and, and when you look up the def definition of pillar, uh, it's normally this uh, tall, not very wide uh, structure of either stone or wood or whatever. And basically its whole goal is to hold weight. Okay, It's to support whatever is above it. And so this last week, Sam had the whole week off of work, and so she came down on, on one of the days to visit me at work. And so I work in this giant building that's just nothing but uh, cubicles. All right, it's pretty depressing, to be honest with you. Uh, so I take her up to the third floor where I work, and so we, we get off the elevator and we turn around, and she just looks, and, and it's nothing but cubicles as far as you can see. And she's just like, wow, this building is huge. Like, this, it's just one big room. Like, it's not that, you know, there's, there's little offices set outside or, you know, the room is broken up. It's literally one giant open room with cubicles all over the place. But what you don't really notice, you know, the first time you look at that, you, you don't really notice all of the white pillars all over the floor. It just, you know, it just doesn't really register. But guess what? If you don't have those pillars, that ceiling ain't staying where it is. 
You ain't getting away with, with four supports on the corners and holding that, that massive room up. Because the pillars are there, not necessarily to draw attention to themselves, or not necessarily to be the focal point, but they're there to hold the weight. They're there to make sure that the building stays standing. And in the same way, Paul uses the word pillar to describe the church. He says, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And so just as all those pillars are holding up the roof, they're holding up the building that I work in, the building could not exist without them, he says the church is a pillar of the truth. The church is not necessarily what we want everyone to see. We want people to see the truth. The truth is what changes people. Now, God does that through the local church. He uses the local church as a way that we proclaim the truth and people that hear it are changed. But Paul says that the church should be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, the second word, buttress, there's, there's some speculation on, on if this word should really be used. Uh, some of your translations may use the word foundation. And... A buttress, if you're not familiar, is simply like a, an additional support that kind of comes off of the side of a building. Uh, so if you can picture like, here's the wall, a buttress would, would kind of like come out from the wall and connect into the ground to kind of help support that wall from falling down. Now some translations translate the word as foundation. Uh, and, and the reason that some translations don't do that is because some people may think that Paul is saying that the church is the foundation of the truth. And I want you to know that that is not at all true. The church is absolutely not the foundation of the truth. God is the foundation of the truth. God has revealed himself in his word, and that is the foundation of truth, not the church. Now, God has ordained that the local church be the, the means by which he presents the truth to the world. But Paul is, is, is not saying that truth originates with the local church. That is not at it at all. But Paul is saying that God has made a promise to the local church that it will never be overcome by the gates of hell. I think that is why some translations may use the word foundation. is because even though the church is not what, what truth originates from, the church will never be overthrown. God will never allow the local church to be overthrown by the, the gates of hell. And so for that reason, the church is like a foundation. It's not going anywhere. God will ensure that it is going to remain. But what Paul says is that we as the church are a pillar of the truth. And here's why I think this is important. When we live the way Paul described and the way Paul explained, that sets us apart from the world. Because the world, if you look at women in the world, they're not trying to adorn themselves with good works. They're not trying to be necessarily modest. They think that's weird. Well, why shouldn't I show off all this money that I've got and wear all the nicest things and adorn myself in all the, the best of the best? And why would men be leaders in the church? Why should men be, be leading and showing everyone else how to do something? Well, well that just seems bigoted. But when we live in such a way that Paul describes, 
When, when our elders are upright, they're people who have good character. They're people who are well thought of by outsiders. And when our deacons are people of, of good character, and they're people who are not easily swayed by, by the devil or by the, the, the sway of riches, that sets the church aside from the rest of the world. And when the rest of the world looks at the church, they see that there's something different. They see that there's something worth looking at. There's something about them that's just different. And Paul is saying, we live the way we do. We behave the way we do in the household of God so that we will inevitably be different from the world. So that we will be a pillar that is holding up the truth. And so when people see that we are different, when they see that we are not like the rest of the world, they're going to notice that there's difference. And then what are they going to see? They're going to see the truth. And then what I find real interesting is Paul says in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he, he, he gives this hymn. Many commentators are calling this the Christ hymn. It says He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is obviously a, a summary of what the Gospels proclaim. This is a summary of who Jesus is. And when Paul says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness, what he means is that it, godliness is what causes us to be set apart. Godliness is what makes us different from the rest of the world. And, and he uses the term godliness because it encompasses two different things. It encompasses, yes, that we behave differently. It encompasses what Paul has explained on how Christians live and how we behave. But it also encompasses having faith. You can't be godly without having faith in God, without having faith in His Son, Jesus. The two are, 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 they don't go together. If you are a godly person, it is because you behave in such a way that you obey God, but also in such a way that you have faith. And Paul uses this term godliness a lot in this letter. If you read this letter, you'll notice the word godliness comes up over and over and over again. And Paul is saying to us tonight, godliness is the reason that we are set apart from the rest of the world. Godliness is what's going to cause the rest of the world to notice that something is different about the church. Because if we all came to church and we all uh, proclaimed to all of our friends and our co-workers that we were part of First Baptist Church Fairdale, but yet we lived and talked and act, acted just like they did, people aren't going to have any reason to think that there's anything that they want to do with church. If we live the same way as the world, the church is going to think, or the, the, sorry, the rest of the world is going to think, why would I waste my Sunday mornings when I can sleep in? Why would I miss the football game on Sunday night just to come here and, and be with a bunch of people who are just like me to begin with? But when the church is, is godly, when the church is different, people see that there's, there's something to all these people that go to church every Sunday morning, and there's something to these people who go to church every Sunday night. It's not because they think that being here at church is what makes us godly, but it's because we know that we are being changed as we hear the truth. And I wondered this evening if you and I have ever thought 
that our personal holiness affects the entire church. I don't know that I've given that a ton of thought over the course of my life. But I feel like I'm coming more and more confronted with this idea that my personal holiness and my personal um, repentance from sin and, and not living in sin has more to do than just with me. It has ramifications and it has effects for all of us. So if all of us in here are secretly trying to live in sin, that's not just affecting you, that's affecting all of us. That's affecting the way you and I as a whole, as a body, as a church, are looking as, as holding up the truth. I wonder if we see that that's important. You see, God does not save people simply just to get them to heaven. God saves people so He can transform them and show the world what He's like. When you and I are godly people, those who interact with us, those who see us, they get a glimpse of what God looks like. That's what it means to be godly. It means that we are like Him. Not perfectly. We're never going to be perfectly sinless in this life. But as we live godly lives, as we live in certain ways within the household of God, the other people outside of the church are inevitably going to see a little bit of what God looks like. And if they knew us before we were Christians, before we were transformed and changed, they're going to see what God has the ability to do in every single human life. And that is the glory of us being the church, being a pillar of the truth. That as we live and as we grow in holiness together... People are inevitably, when they look at us, they will see the truth. And the truth is what changes people's lives. So I want us to think this evening, in the coming week, coming couple weeks, months, I want us to think about our own personal walk with God. I want us to think about our own holiness. How important is it to you? Do you see your holiness as affecting just you? Or do you see it that it affects everyone here in this local congregation? And I think when we, when we see that there's something greater than ourselves, it causes us to, to have a little bit more severity. We see things with a little bit more weight. And I want us to see that us living holy, us living godly, has more to do than just with us. Paul says that we, as the household of God, as the church of Christ, we are a pillar of the truth. He says, let's strive for godliness so that when people look at us, they're going to see the truth. They're going to see what God is like. Let's be people who take godliness and holiness and sanctification very serious. Let me pray. God, thank you this evening for the pastoral epistles. We thank you for the heart of Paul and that he desired to pass on his knowledge to, to raise up a disciple like Timothy. God, I pray that our church would, would also see the importance of being disciplers, pouring our lives and our knowledge into the coming generation. 
God, I pray that you would also help us to feel the weight of godliness. Paul says there's a certain way we should behave in the household of God. And we should behave that way so that when people look at us, they will see the truth. God, I pray that every one of us would be striving for holiness. We would be striving for godliness. Reminded that as we do, it will benefit not just us, but the entire congregation. And not just the congregation, but the watching world. God, I pray that you would help First Baptist Church Fairdale to truly be a pillar of the truth. That we would not be drawing attention to ourselves, but that we would be pointing people to the truth. God, we're thankful to be here tonight. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming out tonight. You are dismissed.